So let's read together verses 7 through 11 of 1 Peter chapter 4, and then we'll spend some time talking about it. So let's put into practice what we've been working on the past couple of weeks. I'll start off by saying this is the Word of the Lord. This calls our attention to the fact that this comes from God, and we are to be grateful for it and bow in submission to it. And then when we're done, after I read these few short verses, I will again repeat this is the Word of the Lord, and then we'll respond with thanks be to God. Say it loud today, if you don't mind. I know I sound like a kindergarten teacher. So this is the Word of the Lord. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality toward one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To Him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good. Thanks. You'll notice on the screen in front of you that one of our core values here in our church is that we are to be a grace-filled community. We are weak and prone to sin. Knowing this, God has ordained that we fellowship together as people aware of their needs for mutual love, assistance, and encouragement. If we are to bring glory to our Lord through the pursuits of these core values, those are the other uh, core values, they're bound together in this one, we must rely upon His abundant and available grace. As we learn to rely upon His grace, we will be better able to, to help others do the same thereby creating an atmosphere permeated always by grace. So, what we're going to talk about today in 1 Peter chapter 4, and again, this will be just kind of casual and applicational and, and hopefully pretty short. Um, we've been talking about unity in the first six verses of Ephesians 4. That was a couple of weeks ago. And then last week, the idea that that unified body is to seek to build itself up in love for the sake of Christ's glory. We're, we're to seek to make disciples collectively for the sake of Christ's glory. It's interesting here in this text that Peter points out that we are in the last days. Now, you know, you hear some people who have like rapture mania, and by that I mean they, they think that the latest cyclone or hurricane or tsunami means that Jesus is returning in March. And maybe He is. I don't, I don't know. I don't have any predictions about that. But Whenever you hear last days, that's what you think. You think that, okay, like the apocalypse is coming right around the corner. But it's interesting that this was written 2,000 years ago, and Peter didn't mean that Jesus was going to return the next day. What he means is that at any time, God is going to bring things to their summation. He's going to bring things to their conclusion. Because the kingdom is breaking in. That is to say, what Jesus has done through His first advent when He first came is He brought the kingdom to this world. Now, it's not fully realized. It's not fully here yet. He doesn't completely reign in the sense that all evil has been done away with. And yet, the kingdom is breaking in, and the last days are upon us. Because of that, we know that these are difficult days. It's kind of like a a snake with uh, its head cut off. Whenever I was a kid, um, we would travel out west all the time. We had the, one of those silver aluminum Airstream trailers. 
And this one particular place we would camp is in northern Colorado, right below the Wyoming border. It was in this little canyon right next to this really beautiful river. But it was a little bit lower elevation than some of the other places we would camp. And one morning in particular, I remember we were, we were eating breakfast at the little fold-out table in our, in our Airstream trailer. And we had the main door open and just the screen door was open to the outside. And my dad looked out the screen door and said, everybody look. And there was a rattlesnake right outside of our screen door. So my dad always had a shovel with him. Uh, most of you don't know my dad. A few of you do. But my dad was a digger. Um, he is still alive. He's still a digger. And so like in our yard as kids, he was always transplanting dirt from one place to another. We had like an acre yard. My dad was from the country. And so whenever he grew up and had a family, he couldn't get that out of his blood. So he's always digging. Like there were irrigation lines all over our yard as a kid. So he always had a shovel with him no matter where he was. And it was always sharpened. It was a spade. And so what he did is he, he went and got the spade and he stepped out on the little steps that went down out beside the screen door. And as he learned as a kid, because this is what you did in Kentucky where he grew up, you stab at it right behind its, its head. And that's what he did. And he, he hit it perfectly and it chopped its head off. And so then he said, now you guys can come out. Of course, I was like seven years old and I wanted to like pick up the head and like extract the fangs and, you know, whatever. And, and he said, don't do that because it can still bite you and it's still dangerous. That's what it's like with Satan these days. In fact, as you go on into chapter 5, and we won't read there today, Peter makes the point that Satan is like a roaring lion walking about seeking whom he can devour. Now, he's a wounded lion, and his demise is sure. There's a mortal wound which has been dealt to that lion, but he's dangerous. In fact, in some ways, wounded animals are even more dangerous. And so as we face these last days, it's sort of a mixture of hope that all the bad stuff is going to come untrue, to sound like Tolkien for a minute in Lord of the Rings. But at the same time, it means that there's some bad stuff out there. It means that there's, there's dangerous days out there as well. And so Peter, knowing that, calls the church, calls his people that he has influence over to be aware that, that things are wrapping up. And there's hope in that, but there's also danger to be noticed. Because of that, how are we to live? With that in mind, with, with that serious uh, sort of forecast of the days ahead, how are we to live? Well, the first thing that, that Peter says is that we are to be mature in praying. So, understanding that we are living in the last days, we must be maturing in praying. This means that it's not okay for us to sort of claim Jesus as, as our Savior, that we get to go to heaven someday and escape all this horrible stuff, and then we just get to live however we want. Much the opposite. We are to be consistently growing in our maturity. What Peter says here is that we are to be self-controlled and sober-minded. That carries with it the idea of, of being serious, of having a, a clear-headed understanding of the world in front of us. Now, that doesn't mean that we're so sober that we can't laugh. It doesn't mean that we can't smile. It doesn't mean that we don't enjoy life or enjoy each other. But it means that we've got to grow up. You understand this. When you're a kid, everything's just kind of a big game. You, you get to just kind of float through life, and it doesn't matter. My youngest son is the perfect epitome of this. 
The other night, we were in our bedroom, and Whitney said something to Sam, and it was like a question, and he answered in the affirmative, yes. And like four or five seconds later, he said, wait, wait, what? That's Sam. I mean, he just kind of floats through life, and he knows that mommy and daddy will take care of him, and he runs around, and he raps most of the time and beatboxes constantly because he doesn't have a lot of cares in the world. Sam's biggest concern is when the first baseball practice is going to be in the spring. Like, that's the next big thing for him. But when you grow up, you can't live like that anymore. Most of us have spouses to take care of, children to care for, jobs to go to, houses to take care of, bills, sicknesses, hard stuff. And this is the reality of growing up. In some ways, we wish we could go back to when everybody took care of everything for us, but but we're not able to do that. We're grown-ups. Well, life is like that as well. And if we're going to face hard days, we have to be mature. We have to be sober-minded. And Peter says here, for the sake of our prayers. One of the things you learn as you get older is that you become more capable at at controlling life. That is to say, my seven-year-old, who only is concerned about, like, rap and baseball, he doesn't have to pay any bills. He doesn't have to get up and fix his own breakfast and dress himself and iron his shirts and and get in the car and fight traffic and get to work and deal with difficult people. He doesn't have to vote at the next election. He doesn't have to worry about any of that stuff. We're the ones who have to do that. But isn't it interesting that the older we get and the more serious-minded we have to be, we realize we really can't control life at all. So it's this interesting dichotomy. We're called to live as as serious-minded, mature people, and yet one of the things that happens over time is as we get older, we realize how, how little control we have. We can't control people. We ultimately can't control our kids, especially as they get older. We can't control our jobs. We can't control our finances. We can't control our health. And that freaks us out. And so how do we deal with that? We pray. It has been said that that those that pray the least worry the most. So all at once we're called to be sober-minded, but how do we deal with this life that we can't control? Well, we pray. So we're not going to really park here today. That's not really the focus of what I want to do today, but I want to say to you that, that part of the reality of growing up as God's people is being serious about our growth. Nobody gets to, to check out on this. You, you can't rely on the strong 10 or 20% to keep a church like this pulling along and chugging along. It, it's a collective effort. This may be an overused cliche, but it's true that we're really only as strong as our weakest link or links. So it's important that we're all growing, we're all maturing, that we, we take our faith seriously. We say here relatively often that this is kind of a high-cost church. We're not here to play. We're here to enjoy each other. We're here to collectively enjoy Christ, but we, we take our faith seriously. We don't want it to be said of us that, that we're just playing games here. So I say to you that because the last days are upon us, and I don't know how long they'll last, they could last another 2,000 years. I don't suspect that that's probably the case, but I have no idea. But as long as we're here, as long as God allows it. We've got to be seeking maturity and praying in the process. And we're going to talk more about that next week as we talk about collective disciple making. But the primary focus that I want to take some time to do today, and this is just kind of a family talk, in verses 8 through 11, Peter makes it clear that we must love one another sacrificially and dependently for God's glory. 
We must love one another sacrificially and dependently for God's glory. Notice in verse 8 that Peter says, above all. So it's like he, he says, be serious, be maturing, and pray. But then he says something else, which to him is equally, if not more important. He says, above all, keep loving one another earnestly. This is to be something that that characterizes our consistent engagement. It takes deliberate, purposeful effort. This is not something that happens easily. It's not something that happens passively. Our marriages are like this. I can use that perhaps as a a helpful illustration because most of us can grab that today. Marriages usually start off at the, the sort of peak of fervor of passion and romance. Both parties do their best to put their best foot forward for a number of months or even years to, to fall in love together. And you, you woo one another, and then you're bound together in, in mutual interest. And for a while, at least as long as the honeymoon lasts, you keep that up. But then you come back and you settle into life. And if you're not careful, the routines of life set in. And it's easy to take one another for granted. It's easy to stop articulating love. It's easy to stop demonstrating love. It's easy to, whereas before you were so focused on the the joy of the other person, to now be focused on your own self-interest. And whereas before, dating and engagement, which are naturally others-focused, because you're wooing and attracting, once the marriage covenant is confirmed, it's easy to become so very self-focused. A church is like that. In fact, this is not a stretch of an analogy because we see this in Paul's writings that our relationship to Christ is very much like a marriage, Paul says. So, why does Peter here say that we are to, above all, Keep loving one another earnestly. Why does he put it like that? Why is it a present progressive verb intensified with the the adjective earnestly or the, the adverb rather earnestly? Why? Because our tendency will be the opposite. Our tendency will be toward self interest. So Peter, knowing that it's the last days, not only tells them to be mature and praying in dependence upon the one who alone can take care of them, but he also tells them to to keep it up and and loving one another earnestly. I said to you last week that there's so much good that I see here, and I meant everything I said by way of encouragement. I think recent days have proven that. You all are characterized by deliberate, earnest love for one another. The way that you have have shown love to Justin and Katie recently and to Tom and Mary and the rest of the family has has proven that that this is in you, that the Spirit is at work. But but what happens next month? Do we we forget the bays? Do we forget to pray for Tom and Mary and the rest of the family? And not only them, there, there are a lot of other people among us who are hurting right now. Some of you know some of those stories, some of you don't. Some of you are suffering great loss right now, things that you were not anticipating that have really rocked you to your core. Some of you are experiencing pain because you can't quite do all the things for your children that you want to do for them. You're worried about them. Some of you are worried about jobs. Some of you have relationships that are disappointing right now, and there's a host of other things. How do we we handle that and 
March and April and May and June and, and beyond that. The reality for us is that, that we have a tendency, as I've already said, toward entropy, toward sort of just like disintegrating away or, or toward deflating or, or, even, or even sort of imploding, where, whereas things once were beautiful and good, we can sort of just self-destruct. And Peter knew that. Why is that important in light of the last days? Well, I think it's important in light of the last days because we desperately need each other. You see, we were not called to individualized living. You were called to live in a community. The past few months in our church have proven the genius of the church. Jesus designed the church for such a time as this. But will we continue? Will this characterize us? And notice not only this, that He gives them some examples of how to do this. He says, love covers a multitude of sins. I think the idea here is that when it really comes down to it, if you are very self-focused, your relationships will be characterized by disintegration. Your relationships will be characterized by conflict. Because what happens whenever you're in a close relationship with someone? Spouse, parent-child, friend? What is inevitable in every relationship you've ever had? It's conflict. And you shouldn't be surprised by it. Because guess what happens when you put two selfish people together? And you don't get to escape that category. Because guess what? Wear the badge. You are selfish. If this was like a Tony Robbins convention, I would make you say it out loud. I am selfish. You are. And despite all the wonderful things I think about you and try to tell you on a consistent basis, you are. And left unchecked, what will happen? It'll be like weeds taking over a once beautiful lawn or, or weeds taking over a once beautiful garden. The vegetation that you are seeking to produce will be choked out by the weeds of selfishness. So what do we have to do consistently? We have to prune. We have to, we have to notice the weeds for what they are. And so Peter says here, love covers a multitude of sins. See, see here's the thing. You're a sinner and I'm a sinner. And dealing with the reality of that, it helps us go into life wide-eyed. What I mean by that is, you're going to sin, and you need your brother, you need your sister in Christ, to be able to look at you and say, brother, sister, I'm not, I'm not surprised you sinned, not only because you're evil, I mean, you're not like an exclusive category, but because we all do bad stuff. So, I'm not surprised that you sinned, and I forgive you. In fact, I think one of the most clear signs of, of growing in maturity and gospel grace is that not only you're able to forgive the big stuff, but you're able to overlook a lot of the small stuff. You see, there's some things you have to address. The biggest stuff, the things that will really mess up a relationship, especially when a person is characterized by some sinful tendencies. In one way or another, those kinds of things have to be addressed. But generally speaking, that's not the main things that we do. We don't typically do really bad stuff to each other. Typically what happens is we just do little small stuff to each other. But left unchecked, what happens to all the small stuff? Those small things build up like sedimentary layers, and they become really big things. So how do we deal with those things? Well, you may not really like this, but a lot of things you just have to overlook. Isn't it interesting that marriage, again, is like this? 
When you first get married, everything's a big deal, right? Everything you say, posture, body language, facial expressions, like everything you take super, super seriously. But if you, if you go at life like that for the rest of your marriage, you're going to be exhausted and you're going to drive each other crazy. So one of the great things that maturing couples who have successful marriages are able to do is they're able to overlook a lot of things. We don't have to address every single little thing. I think mature, wise parents learn to do this too. You address the big stuff and, and you, you set a trajectory for your kids. But if you address every single little thing your kids do, you're going to drive them crazy, especially as they get older. Our relationships, our friendships, and our, our, our family relationships in this church are a lot like that as well. You see, one of the things that, that a person who, who understands the grace of Jesus does is, is that person is willing to overlook a lot of things. So, let me paint an example. Let's say that you perceive that your brother or your sister has done something offensive towards you. Um, and, and a lot of times it's not the big stuff. Like, like they didn't curse at you. They didn't break into your house at night with a ski mask at, like, and rob you at gunpoint. You know, they didn't like kidnap your kid. They didn't steal your car. Usually it's the small stuff, right? They didn't talk to you on Sunday. Um, they, their body language when they did talk to you was not very warm. They were dismissive. They didn't return a text. Forgive me when I say this, ladies, but I think some of this stuff's harder for women than it is for men. You might be mad at me for saying that, but I've been at this a little while. I've seen this. You know, if, if I talk to Nick after the service and, and he won't hug me back, which, you know, Nick doesn't hug anybody, I'm really not that upset. Like, I'm not going to hold it against him for like six months, right? Whereas if, if women don't connect on deeper, more relational levels, it's interesting how, how quickly those relationships can really become shaky. Am I, am I wrong about this? I'm not. It's hard. And to be clear, men are not exempt from this. The reality is, what do we have to do? Well, we have to, learn, we have to learn to give the benefit of the doubt. You see, this is one of the, the signs of, of maturity. You, you see, our world is filled with, with the noxious, poisonous gas of self-interest. It's the atmosphere that we breathe. But, but what happens if you don't pay attention to that noxious gas? If you don't have a nose for it, you breathe it in. And as it characterizes you and me and all the rest of us, we are inevitably going to destroy each other. This is why we take so much time in the Word of God to notice our tendencies, to notice the danger. And as Peter says here, it is the last days, and, and that wounded animal, the devil, is seeking to destroy us. And very often, the way that he will do that is by causing our love for one another to become fragile. Uh, you see this in nature. Generally speaking, a pack of wolves, if it's going to try to, to, to get a meal out of a herd of elk or like a herd of bison, if you've ever been to Yellowstone, you've seen this. They don't go for like the biggest bull who, who's leading his harem or, or leading his herd. What they do is they find the sick one or they find the, the little small ones and they, they cull them from the herd. 
that they'll go to the periphery of the herd and they'll, they'll sort of shepherd them, if you will, away from the herd and then they're vulnerable and, and they pick them off. I think churches are like that as well, very much like that. What happens when you become very self-interested and self-focused? Well, generally speaking, you begin to separate yourself from the church. You separate yourself from the collective whole. And then what ends up happening? Your self-interest does not go away. Frankly, your self-interest really only increases. And then you notice everything bad about everybody else, about the herd that you've left behind not realizing that there's danger right at your heels and it's about to hamstring you and, and, and slit your throat with some sharp fangs. That's the wounded animal, Satan, who's coming after you. But you don't know that. And the more you're separated from the whole, what you begin to notice is that everybody back in the whole has problems. They're not loving you like they should. They're too self-interested. They're, they're not like you, so they're weird. And this goes to the leadership as well. The leadership is failing you. You don't like them. You don't like the way they teach. You don't like the way they lead. And eventually what happens as you become more and more separated, as you become more and more self-focused, and you're bent inward. This is the opposite of incarnational love. You see, incarnational love, the love of Jesus, comes toward. The incarnational love comes to be among Incarnational love sets aside self-interest and, and comes among the herd, if you will. And in doing so, you are much less prone to being picked off. You are, you are in far less danger the more connected you are to the whole. And this is not just me as a pastor encouraging you to be involved here. This is the way that Scripture talks to us because Scripture knows our tendencies. Let's look at incarnational love for just a minute. Turn with me to Luke 15. You are familiar with this story. It is not um, one that in any way is unfamiliar to you. It's the story of the prodigal son. To give you a little bit of context, there's a father who's very rich, and he has two boys. The older boy is going to receive the lion's share of the inheritance, but the younger son wants his portion of the inheritance. He asks for it, and he goes off to live it up. He's going he's gonna to go out and take his trust fund, so to speak, and he's going to live it up. But he spends it very foolishly, and eventually it, it runs out. He finds himself living quite literally in a pigsty. And he comes to himself and essentially says, okay, it, it's going gonna, it's gonna to shame me to go back to my father, but it, it's a lot better than eating husks and, and living in the, the nastiness with these swine. So I'm going to go back to my father. So he makes a plan, and he says in verse 18 of Luke 15, I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. That was a right estimation. His plan's actually pretty good. It's pretty humble, pretty honest. So verse 20, he enacts the plan. He arose and came to his father. But this is the surprising turn in the story. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his sand and shoes on his feet. And bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. 
If you go on to read the rest of the story, you know that the older brother had the exact opposite reaction from the father. Jesus told this story to make a point. He basically was communicating this. I, with incarnational love, have come after people who were broken and sinful and rebellious. That's what gracious, God-like love looks like. I personify it. But all of your religious leaders, they're like the older brother. The older brother was enraged that the father would treat the son like this. You see, the father was not indifferent. He wasn't passive-aggressive with the prodigal. When the son was still a long way off, he ran after him, which was, which was really anti-custom for the day. If you're a dignified landowner like this guy was, you don't do that. You allow the, the prodigal to come back to you, and, and maybe you do make him one of your servants because he shamed you. That's not what this father did. He pursued the son and embraced him and treated him like what he was. He was a son. That's incarnational love. Incarnational love pursues the wicked. Incarnational love pursues the disappointing. Incarnational love sets aside how one has been offended and and embraces the one who has done the offending. Satanic emotion, satanic attachment is is to push away. It's, It's to punish. So what Peter is calling us to in his epistle here is to to do the opposite of what our tendency is. So whether it's something big, and by something I mean offense, if offense is a big enough thing that you've got to go and address it, your love should be big enough to cover that because God's love is big enough to not only cover all of your past offenses, but all the offenses you will continue to incur against Him. You see, the slightest offense against God is far more treasonous, is far more treacherous, is far more serious than the greatest offense anyone could ever commit against you. And yet, what is the Father's, what is the incarnational love of the Son, what's that like towards you? It pursues, it embraces, it's not embittered. And as you grow as a believer and and you you relate to God in that sense, doesn't it bring you confidence that that even when you fail, which is every day, that He won't cast you off? You don't have to buy Him off. So then why, if, if He's that way toward us and we learn to expect that from Him, do we treat each other so differently? if we would learn to have the incarnational love of Jesus that pursues real offenders, I mean, people who've really hurt us, our marriages would be characterized by, by harmony. Our relationship with our children, both when they're little and when they're older, will be characterized by, by peace. And our church will be bound together with, with tenacious love. This is what Paul is talking about in 1 Corinthians 13. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. 
This is not mere sentimentality. This is costly. But isn't incarnational love costly? The second person of the Trinity put on frail human flesh, and then He was murdered. We are called to a similar love. Calvin said 500 years ago, Therefore, we must learn to humble ourselves in order that we may embrace such as are truly our brothers, especially since we know that we need to be born with by them. Because guess what? If your brother or sister is the offender today, the tables will be turned and it will be you tomorrow. And those of us who desperately crave the mercy of God to forgive us our sins and to keep us in the family, who learn to to love His relational, pursuing, forgiving love, don't you want that from each other? Especially as we are in the last days, especially as our enemy is about seeking to destroy us. And one of the ways that He'll do that is by separating us from one another and therefore making us vulnerable. I love this quote from Matt Chandler. He says, love, personifying love. Love says, I've seen the ugly parts of you and I'm staying. Isn't that good? What happens whenever you've spent time with people over, time, uh, uh, over a period of time, days, months, weeks, you know, years? What happens? You see their flaws. You spend enough time with, with you or me, guess what happens? You're going to see my pride. I'll see your lust. You'll, you'll see my envy. I'll see your anger. You'll see my selfishness. Uh, I'll see your greed. It's just going to happen. Because even as we're growing in Christ, guess what happens? There's still ugly stuff that's being unveiled. You know what I need from you? And what you need from me and what we need from each other? Is the commitment that when the ugly stuff comes out, and and maybe it's actually quite ugly and, and hurtful, that we're able to remember what incarnational love looks like and then say to one another, I've seen the ugly parts of you, and and I'm not going anywhere. That's how the world lives. If if you screw me, I'm going to screw you. You hurt me, I'm going to cut you off. It's hard. It's, It's really, really hard. And I say to you, and I say this in love, the only way that you can can sustain this kind of momentum toward incarnational, forgiving, uh, sin-covering love is if you're consistently drinking deeply from the well of the gospel. That is to say, you've got to be consistently meditating upon the fact that Jesus has shown you this kind of love. So, we must love one another sacrificially. It costs us something to love like that. Peter goes on to say in verse 9, show hospitality toward one another without grumbling. In the first century, these churches were mostly made up of relatively poor people, and whenever they would travel from city to city, they didn't have means often to stay in in sort of sophisticated lodging environments, So, so they needed the church that was in the next city they went to to support them. So, it was expected that if I live in Ephesus and you live in Corinth, that I'm going to shack up with you for a while, and you're going to give me something to eat. You're going to make sure I'm taken care of. And apparently, over time, if you stayed long enough, it was really going to cost the host something. 
But Peter says, listen, if your brother or sister from another assembly comes to be with you, learn to live that way. But that's not exactly how we live. So how do we apply that to our current day and time? Let me give you an example. And this, again, is a little bit out of our culture, but I thought it was really beautiful. This past August, whenever I was in Kenya, um, the Masungas wanted me to teach in several cities outside of Nairobi and to save on costs for the trip and also to keep cultural custom, we stayed in the various homes of the pastors of the churches to which I went. And in every place you go, you're treated like royalty. You, you're served food first, and if you don't eat your food first and you don't eat a lot of it, you really deeply offend them. Um, in one particular home, we were on our way back to Nairobi after a day of teaching, and as Joseph Masunga often does, you never know, exactly know what the day holds. He always has like six or seven things that you're going to do. You have no idea. And he just says, this is what we're doing next, and you just go. And it doesn't matter how long you're there and how long it you know, takes you to be there and if, how late it makes the next appointment. You just do a lot of stuff with people. So we're, we're driving down this you know, pretty well-paved highway, which is kind of a rarity in Kenya. And we're making good time to get back to Nairobi, which I was looking forward to because I was really tired. It was toward the end of my, my teaching um, tour, and I wanted to get home and back to their house and get on Skype and talk to my family. But Joseph says, no, we're pulling off. So, so we, we stop at this small kind of out-of-the-way gas station, and he starts asking this person if this person knows where someone else lives. And in Kenya, people just know things. I don't know how they know things. If you stop at my house and ask me where Jake Smith lives, I have no idea. You know, I barely know some of my neighbors. But they know everything. And so they said, you know, go down like three trees, turn left at the fourth rock, and, and there's a barn there and a little farmhouse, and that's where your friend lives. And so we did. And that's where they were. So we, we go into this like shanty house. It's made out of corrugated tin, and, and there's nothing nice in there. And we go and we're ushered into the house. And, and it was like I knew these people my whole life and I'd never met them. And I'll probably never see them again until eternity. It was an older couple that Joseph had known from days gone by. They had retired to the countryside. And Joseph just wanted to stop in real quick and, and talk to them and, and say hi to them and, and that he loved them and that we were, gonna, we were gonna go on to Nairobi, which was a very loving thing to do, something most of us would never do. And the old lady, her name was Veronica. She, I don't know how old she was. She looked like, an ancient tortoise. I mean, she was completely ancient. Um, she, she went into her little makeshift kitchen, and these people have like zero money, and she brought out sticky rice and chai, like tea and milk brewed together, and she would not let us leave until we had a meal. And it was interesting is like before the meat little meal began of, of rice and chai, uh, we were just getting ready to dig in, and, and she made her husband stop and pray. And he blessed us and, you know, blessed our time together. And we ate super quickly and, and then prayed again because you always pray before and after whenever you enter somebody's home in Kenya. And we got in our car and left. I'll never forget that. They, they welcomed us into their home, me a total stranger, and, and fed me and prayed over me. And while we were there to bless them, they blessed us instead. I think that, that sort of encapsulates or captures what, what a hospitable spirit looks like. Now, quite literally, I think you should have people in your homes. We, we used to be a little better about that than we are right now. I feel like we've slacked a little bit in that regard in our church. We do that through our small groups on a weekly basis, so I love that. But 
maybe jot this down. I, I encourage you to talk to your spouse if you're married and, and think about the next family you should have into your home. And then come up with a plan of having one a month or something like that so that you're spending time together. And not just your best buds, but people you maybe don't know that well. We joke all the time around here about having your antenna up. Look around. Who, who, who could you bless? It's interesting. It, once you're in the mix and really know people's stories and, and they begin to tell you stuff because they know you care, you learn their pains. But if you're distant from one another and you're just sort of self-interested and you only know like surface relationships, you'll never know that stuff. Having people in your home allows you to, to get to know them and, and hear what's going on and care for them and love them. That's gold. It's irreplaceable. But even beyond that, we are to have hospitable spirits. When people are in your presence, do you, do you, do you think that they feel welcomed? Do your words welcome them? Do you have enough guts to say awkward things to them? Like, hey, I, I want you to know I really love you. You're like, we don't talk like that because we're Westerners. Well, get over yourselves. Do your facial expressions, your body language, does it welcome people? Are you waiting for others to do that for you? That's the opposite of incarnational love. Incarnational love pursues And when you do have to say something hard to somebody because they've hurt you, sins that crop up between brothers and sisters, if you've had a welcoming spirit toward that person as your custom, if that personifies you, it would be much easier for that person to hear your criticism or your concern whenever the hard stuff does arise. One of the weaknesses of our church still is that we are not the best affirming church. We must learn to grow in that and I want that to rest heavy on your shoulders this morning. For all the good that I see here, we are weak in that. And it's time for that to change. And I say that to you on purpose because hospitality is not just having somebody in your home and, and feeding them short ribs. Hospitality is, is about who you are. And one of the most important ways to demonstrate that to people is through your words. And notice we're to do this without grumbling. So you don't have to complain that I said this to you today. You don't get to complain that it costs you something. In verse 10, he goes on to say, every one of us has received a gift. We talked about this in Ephesians 4. Yours is different than mine. Mine is different than yours. But it doesn't matter. We all have a role to play. In other words, I don't have the sole responsibility of exercising my gifts in this body. You do too. And I see so much good here. I see so many of you using your gifts for God's glory. I think that basically characterizes our church, and I'm really, really thankful for that. But are all of us doing it? And even for those of us who are engaged in it, are we doing it to the degree we should? You see, you're never going to reach this place where you're doing it perfectly. It's always going to be a process. And notice that we're good stewards of God's grace, or at least we're supposed to be. This means that it's a gift. A steward is one who just administrates a gift. This means that if you don't receive all the recognition you want from the discharge of your gift, you're just going to have to learn to deal with it. Because ultimately, why do we have these gifts? Well, we're stewards, and whether we are serving or speaking, those of us who maybe have a little bit more public use of our gifts, all of us are to do this for God's glory. You notice that toward the end of verse 11. 
So as you, as a steward, discharge the gifts of the master, who's to receive the, the, the recognition? Who's to receive the glory? Not you. This is hard because our pride is always involved. But I say to you, whether your gifts are a little bit more public, mine are a little bit more public, or whether yours are a little bit more private, maybe you're inviting people into your life or into your home and nobody knows about it. It's not for you. You know how much I struggle with that? I struggle with that every time I preach. I will, I will finish today, and I will get in our Yukon, and I will drive home, and I will wait for Whitney to tell me that was a good sermon. Now, on the one hand, it's good to hear that because I want to be encouraged. But on the other hand, it's really hard to fight this idea that it's about me. Every time I lead a small group, every time I do a funeral or a wedding, every time I walk away from a discipleship meeting, every time I serve you in some more practical way, every time I have to fight that tendency. Now, what I have learned, and I'm finding some victory in this to encourage you, what I have learned is that I have to pray proactively not just retroactively, not just in response to what I've done. In other words, I know that I will struggle with this, so I begin to pray ahead of time that God will help me with this. Sometimes I'm more successful than others, but, but I am growing in this, but it's really, really hard. So I say to you as a steward, your gifts are not for you. They've been given to you for other people and for God's glory. Not only do I struggle with pride, I struggle with exhaustion. To be frank, I feel a little bit like that recently. But often what that demonstrates is that I'm trusting myself. Now, we can all get exhausted. That's just practical living. But often what I find myself doing is doing what God wants me to do, using the gift that He's given me for you and my own strength. And notice that Peter says there that we're to use our gifts with the strength that God supplies. And again, when that happens, He gets the glory. So here's the idea. He gives the gifts… He enables you to use the gifts, and therefore it's not about you. It's for the good of others and for His glory. And so Peter ends this by saying, To Him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So, brothers and sisters, we are in the last days, however long they will last. And they are serious, and they are dangerous. Therefore, we must be maturing and praying. That's just the call that we have to realize. But but more importantly for today, above all this, Peter says, keep loving one another earnestly and use your gifts for the good of each other, for the glory of God. Do it sacrificially. It will cost you something. Do it humbly. It's not about you. And in doing so, God gets glory and the body is built up. We can't overtalk this. So, by God's grace, may He help us to learn these things today.